Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Megan Williams. And I'm Samira Moyadin. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, changing seasons. As his village deals with drought and water rationing, the mayor of McBride, British Columbia, tells us he's worried about the future of communities like his. Not an isolated problem. In the Yukon, a resident musher says she's struggling to train for an upcoming dog sled race because there simply isn't enough snow to slide on. Return to sender. After a drug activist sends magic mushrooms and coca leaves to every MLA in B.C., one politician, who's a former substance user, calls it an inconsiderate act. Making waves. An orca matriarch known as Wake, who had eight children and over a dozen grandchildren, is presumed dead. And a whale researcher fondly remembers the last time he spotted her. The sky's the limit. Teenager Chloe Familton has silenced her doubters after completing a solo plane journey around Australia which she hopes will inspire other young women to take flight. And a round of applause. A Mississippi dog breeder tells us about the decade-long effort to have the American Kennel Club recognize a small, smiley canine called the Lancashire Healer. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that's a rough act to follow. It was a green Christmas in McBride, British Columbia, nestled in a valley in the Rockies, or more accurately, it was a brown Christmas. The town declared a drought emergency in September, and villagers have been rationing water ever since. Four months later, there's no end in sight. And now Mayor Jean Runce says tourism dollars are drying up along with the town's water supply. We reached Mayor Runce in McBride. Mayor Runtz, you must be hearing from the people in your community who are concerned about the situation. What do you tell them? Well, what what we're doing right now is, uh, of course, we're still in an emergency situation, and the water restrictions that we have are all voluntary. So really right now we're just asking people to conserve water, and we've given them information on how to do that. So right. people are people are doing their thing. They're concerned. They're, they're trying to do what they can uh, our biggest problem is what's going to uh, happen in the summer coming up. The water consumption vigilance has been going on for about four months now. Has there been any tensions around this or are people helping each other out? Yeah, that's what everybody's doing and uh, is, is where people need help with stuff. But in, in the town, th- there's water available uh, outside of town. So we've got uh, I guess our population is around 670 uh, in town, but we have triple that amount outside of town. So, uh, and those are the areas where people's have their wells have gone dry, mm. or their wells are at such a state that the water coming into them is is not 
is, is, is not good to drink. And, and those people are helping each other out. You know, the neighbor might have water and, and everybody's just, you know, helping where they can. And your community, of course, is no stranger to fire. Are you confident you have enough water to fight a major fire if one were to break out, even today? Well, I, I think I, I don't think there's a problem fighting forest fire here. We, we've got the Fraser River right here, and, uh, and you can even have the biggest plains land on that and scoop water. What I am concerned about in the summer is that we do get a, a fire that happens in the summer in the town, and if it if it's if it's isolated to one property, one house, we can we probably will have enough, or we should have enough to put out uh, one house. One house. If it if it if we got a lot of wind and it goes to a second or a third house, right now we we're not sure whether we got enough. So that's that's being looked at right now with the idea that we need to have that kind of answer and things available for the summer in McBride, or we may not have those capabilities. Wow. How has the drought affected the tourist industry? Well, this winter, um, it has is, is had a huge impact because up until the Christmas time, people were mostly having to stay away and have been canceling. And we've got snowfall higher up on, on the hills, on the mountains here, but it's not to the extent by any means that we usually have. It's down a whole heck of a lot. And how is that affecting people who, who are relying on that income? Well, that's one of the highest income items in, in the entire town. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of our a lot of our people really work in that. And, uh, you know, McBride is, a, is an elite area for snowmobiling, you know, in the world. It's definitely in North America. And what's happening right now is a huge impact monetarily for the people that depend on that. And, uh, you know, everybody's doing the best they can, but there's only so much we can do if we're not getting snow. Mayor Runtz, how concerned are you for the future of your community if climate change continues to have these kinds of effects? Well, in terms of water for the community, that is huge. The snow in the mountains for snowmobiling, they're kind of two different things. Uh, but in terms of water, what we're looking at right now is can we tap into our our source of our it's Dominion Creek that we have where we have our reservoir mm-hmm. and where the stream enters the flats is where our intake is. Uh, about five to six hundred meters, there's no water at all on the surface, and that's been since last June and is still happening right now. And uh, that is never, we've never had an occurrence before where any portion of the creek bed was dry. So that right there just tells the seriousness of this whole situation. You're just one authority amongst different levels of government. Do you think there is a big enough sense of urgency on all levels of government to address the problem of climate change? I think there is. The... uh, that's that's one thing with with the provincial government here, they are a, they are a, a real believer in that and that things have to be done. We recently, and that was this summer, we received a 2.6 million dollar grant from the provincial government, and the idea of that was uh, was money is available to to get our water cleaned up, and we're looking at right now what that means and whether we can do any adjustments. Uh, with that grant, because what we are looking at right now is 
you know, how we tap in above where the damage is. Mm-hmm. And that, that'll that stop the problem in the short term. But it may also give us adequate water. Uh, but that that uh, alone is not going to do, is not going to be the answer for stuff. We are also looking at um, uh, another couple of drainages that are adjacent to uh, our watershed, where we, whether we can tap into sources of water off those drainages also. Mayor Runtz, thanks very much for speaking with me, and good luck. Okay, and thank you very much, because it helps other people having the interest to make the governments aware of things. So this, this really helps us that, uh, that you guys are doing what you're doing, and we really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay, bye. We reached Mayor Jean Runtz in McBride, British Columbia. BC isn't the only spot where a lack of snowfall is posing new challenges. In less than a month, the Yukon Quest sled dog race is set to begin in Whitehorse, and mushers and their dogs in training are finding new ways to prepare in areas of the Yukon still without snow. Rhonda Katelko is a longtime event volunteer who will be racing herself for the first time this year. She's been using her quad bike to train with her eight dogs. And we got Buffy. Hi, Buffy. Please don't eat the microphone. Don't eat the microphone. <laughs> and then we got Lenny. <laughs> and then Stormer is up there at front. Training has been a struggle this year for us. Um, we have very low snow conditions north of town here. Um, we're into January and I'm already, or I'm still running on the quad. So we've had no sled runs yet. Uh, which going a month up to the race isn't ideal. Um, we have been able to do 30 mile run, um, pretty 20 miles pretty consistently, but um, even in the beginning of the year, um, trying to get those those miles in because the temperatures were just so warm and my dogs do have a significant fur base. So I really have to watch the temperatures that I'm running them at. So it made it a challenging the beginning of the season just to get any miles on, short runs just to make sure that they're not overheating. But yeah, this year has been quite the challenge to try and get our training miles in. We still make do with what we have and we're having fun doing it though. How many sled runs would you like to get in ideally before the race? Oh my God. A lot more. (laughs) A sled run would be nice before the race. Looking at the forecast, of course, we've got no snow in the forecast for the next week, 10 days or so. I probably could be using the skidoo right now. There is barely enough snow for the skidoo. It's just, it's not as forgiving when you're traveling with the dogs with the skidoo. You have to be really consistent with your speed because you don't want to injure dogs. The sled, until I can get a snow hook into the ground, um, like we don't have, at the moment, we don't have enough snow um, out on our trails to ensure that the snow hooks are going to hold. So you're snub lining everything off. And if you run into a problem where you don't have any trees to snub off, 
you're not able to get off the sled, which, again, if you want to do and have to do anything with the team is really not ideal. So um, just for safety's sake, sticking with the quad until we have a little bit better conditions for everybody. Rhonda Catelco of Lake Lubarge spoke to CBC's Katie Todd on Yukon Morning earlier today. When you're a teenager, it's pretty normal to have big dreams. But Chloe Hamilton didn't just aim high, she also aimed far, as in some 14,000 kilometers. Late last week, the 18-year-old completed a month-long solo flight around Australia, a trip she hopes will encourage more women to pursue aviation. We reached Chloe Hamilton in Sydney. Chloe, congratulations. This was a massive undertaking. What were you thinking about during the final moments when you were in flight completing your journey? Well, I think there was definitely a lot to think about. On one hand, I was reflecting about all that I'd done, all that I'd accomplished and all that I'd experienced during the flight. But at the same time, I was also thinking a little bit about the future and perhaps the impact and the legacy that this flight would have in encouraging young people, especially young women, about the possibilities of aviation because... Uh, in Australian aviation, women make up only 5% of our licensed pilots. Um, and I really think that's something that needs to change by appealing to girls and young women and showing that it's possible to to achieve things such as this. Now, you, when you first started telling people that you wanted to fly solo around Australia, what kind of reaction did you get? I'd say that the aviation community is quite supportive, but especially initially, there was a little bit of negative attention and backlash from that. I actually approached uh, three different people, three different providers when it came to renting the aircraft for the trip because the first two um, believed that I wouldn't be capable of uh, completing the flight because I am a young woman. Did they come out and say that? Uh, they had, yeah, I had a few people expressing concerns about my physical strength when it came to things like pushing the aircraft around on yourself, things such as me being on my own, being able to refuel. Mm-hmm. And I had a, someone, this actually quite annoyed me a lot, uh, comparing me to Amelia Earhart, who of course went missing over the Pacific Ocean and said that mm-hmm. if the world's famous female aviator got herself lost in a flight, then how would a 17-year-old be able to get herself around the country? which quite upset me because actually on the flight where Amelia Earhart did go missing, she was flying with a male navigator. So, yeah, that really says a lot about, I guess, the industry at the moment. But Right. So I want to go back to the journey. Uh, what was that like being up there on your own? Well, for me, obviously, aviation is something I'm very, very passionate about. And I love the feeling of being in control and being free in flight. So, mm-hmm being up there almost in your own world, in control of your aircraft, able to make your own decisions. Were there times when you were lonely or when you had doubts? Uh, Definitely a few times, yes, you would. However, I think most of the time I was very much enjoying it. What did you like about it most? I think very much getting to see, see the country around me and explore different parts of Australia, especially in summertime, um, where you have the tropical wet season in the northern parts of Australia. So 
it was very, very different and getting to see slowly the landscape changing around me as I went from place to place, that was that was wonderful. And I understand you also had to keep your eye out for some wildlife. What was that about? <laughs> well, I was flying in some very, very, very remote parts of Australia, which meant that a lot of the airports I'd be landing at are a little, a little different to the East Coast where I learned how to fly, where airports are long enough to land a commercial jet. Um, so oftentimes I'd be touching down on very short dirt strips or grass. Uh, I think the underside of the plane has still got red dirt on it. I'm not sure if that's ever going to come off, but <laughs> I will remember starting my descent for one of them and going, oh, I'll just double check the information one more time. And there being a little clause in there saying, it's recommended that you'll do a low pass over the over the strip before you land to scare away any kangaroos yeah. or emus that might be there. And I understand some of the places that you stopped to get gas were pretty tiny. Yeah, I think, again, that speaks to how remote outback Australia can be. So a lot of the times you just be pulling into roadhouses along the one major highway that stretches across central southern Australia. Um, so a lot of these roadhouses, they'll have particular pumps for the sort of gas you put in your car and then one for the planes. So uh, twice mm. I actually ended up landing at a place and then had to taxi across this building, pull up the exact same way you would if you were filling up a car and then get out and chuck some gas in. <laughs> one of them I showed up at about 9am on Christmas morning and uh, there were a few people outside, I think, having their breakfast and they look up at me as I just bring bring the plane over to refuel. <laughs> So what did they make of a of an 18-year-old girl, you know, pulling up and saying fill her up on your plane? <laughs> I don't I'm not sure how often they get that, but I mean, definitely for a few people they probably had to look look back again and go, "Wait, what?" I know I had a few people come up and ask me for like a selfie and stuff while I was refueling, which was which was really cool. Now, when you weren't flying, where did you sleep? Like how did you spend your time? Uh, I was very, very, very fortunate with this flight that I actually did stay with other people for a lot of it. So I'm part of the Australian Women Pilots Association. So actually quite a quite a few women along the way when I stopped in a particular place would uh, open up their home to me for the, for the night and I'd get to stay with them, which was lovely. Oh, wow. So you were sort of creating a female pilot network as you were doing this. Yeah, I think uh, having now people all over the country who I've I've stayed with and I know really well is so wonderful. And I think it's very, very great to be, I guess, a little bit more connected in this industry and have that support network. Because even though there, there were, there are, and there will always be people who doubt me, at the same time, mm -hmm. I now have this great network of people who I know are really fighting for me. If there are girls listening right now who might be a little intimidated by the idea of flying a plane, as I'm sure many are, what would you say to them about the experience of flying and on why it's worth pursuing? Oh, wow. Um, well, I think that, yes, it can very much be scary at times because mm -hmm. it is going to be a challenge and it is something that is going to push you and it will be at times a struggle. But at the same time, it is through those challenges and through those struggles that we can become a better version of ourselves to challenge ourselves to grow. And I think it's such a wonderful thing. And I feel so privileged to, to be a part of this community. So I think if it's something that you're interested in, and it's a passion that you have, by exploring it, I think you too will also grow. And 
by falling in love with flying, Mm -hmm. I think you'll realize that you could achieve stuff you didn't even think you could before. Chloe, thanks so much and congratulations (laughs) again. Oh, thank you very, very much. (laughs) Last week, Chloe Hamilton completed a solo trip flying around Australia. We reached her in Sydney. There's a new dog in town, weighing in at 17-ish pounds and shaped like a small corgi. The Lancashire Healer is joining the American Kennel Club. Nicknamed the Lanky, it's known for its long body, short stature, and apparently its smile. And it's now eligible to participate in thousands of U.S. dog shows. Patricia Blankenship has bred Lancashire Healers for a decade. We reached her in Flora, Mississippi. Patricia, what does a Lancashire healer's smile look like? They just have kind of like peel their lips back a little bit and show teeth. Some of them have a, just like people have a bigger smile than others. But I think it's not just the smile, it's the expression in their face that goes along with the smile. Mm. And it just really looks like a smile. (laughs) Now you have a few healers of your own. Can you tell me about their names? Most of them are named after British kings and queens, princes and princes. Uh, There's Prince Edward, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth. Of course, they have call names, Lizzie and Vicky and Eddie and stuff like that. So most most all of mine that I you know, have raised or kept myself or whatever have, you know, have gotten names of... Of royalty. royalty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, does the breed suit such regal names? Some do, some might not. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going uh, with them anyway. Fergie and Diane, and, and they kind of, their personalities are, you know, Fergie's, you know, a little more, you know, outgoing, just like the real Fergie is and stuff, and <laughs> Now, you've Uh, bred lots of different kinds of dogs. What made you stick with this one? I had in high school many moons ago, I was doing the tour Manchester Terrier, and they, you know, that and the Corgi are two of the main breeds, they believe, are in the background, makeup of the Lancashire Healer, and um, flipping through a book and saw them, and they're just, uh, I've had small dogs, big dogs, and they're just a, to me, a, good size and then uh, uh, the black and tan colors always been one of my favorite colors uh, of course they come in black and tan and liver and tan so i got liver and tans too which i love too but you know initially it was black and tan uh one of my first litters were out of black and tan parents matter of fact three generations of black and tan went back and i had a, a liver puppy come out and it was kind of like oh what a surprise <laughs> He got named uh, Broken Wings, born in the USA. They were born on Flag Day, I believe it was, June the 10th of 2012. He was the first ever liver born in the United States. Ah, so he didn't get a regal name, British royalty. No, we we did a flag name on him. They they were flagged. <laughs> they ended up, his call name was Justice, so there was Justice, Freedom, and Liberty in that litter. There was three of them. <laughs> 
Well, having a breed recognized by the American Kennel Club is quite the process. How did you help it along? You know, we've come a long ways with with a lot of work and help from people and stuff. My end of it was more the breeding end of it. Uh, to move up in each category, you had to have X amount of uh, three-generation pedigree dogs. Mm-hmm. And, of course, to go from um, miscellaneous to full, then... You know, I helped in that area to get our number of dogs up because I've raised several litters of puppies uh, on that. This is probably my... Are we we hearing a healer in the background? No, this is a repairman, I have a feeling. I'm sorry. Hang on just a minute. Hello? (laughs) I'm very sorry. I'm so sorry. That's okay. You've got a lot going on there. (laughs) But which... Was that one of the healer dogs barking in the back? ground there no that's it my (laughs) 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 my ringtone is a dog bark (laughs) 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 my ringtone on on the calls is a dog bark and my uh text tone is a duck quacking so (laughs) i'm i'm a crazy animal person okay i've got i've had all kinds of animals all throughout my life yeah that's coming across Now, animal rights activists argue that adding breeds to the American Kennel Club reduces pet adoptions and adds to canine health problems. Have you seen any problems with the Lancashire healer? You know, all breeds have their individual possibilities of, you know, diseases and stuff and whatnot. Mm. The Lancashire healer's main two concerns are the eye disorders. They have trouble seeing? Well, it's something that if, if they're if they're affected by it, they yes can be blind, and the one is very a painful situation, and usually has to have eyes removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fortunately now there's there's t- DNA testing uh, because all all the breeders pretty well have their dogs tested and stuff, and they can be clear or carrier. Uh, they can be clear by parentage because DNA is DNA. It's got to be there for it to show up. Even with the DNA testing, do you think there's an argument to be made that we should stop breeding dogs in this way, particularly with so many rescues out there? No, I'm not. A, I totally disagree with mm-hmm. Peter, and that's my opinion. I don't feel that uh, you know, a responsible breeder and stuff is not is not adding to that problem. You know, in a lot of cases, that's this the irresponsible breeder that's people getting something because they haven't done their research into a particular breed yeah a percentage you know you might say a very extremely low percentage but no that's not that's not why we have a bunch of animals in rescue this breed has a nickname lanky how do you mm-hmm. feel about the nickname i think it's fine there's some people who don't like it but i think it's fine they all, you know, most all breeds have a, a nickname. I mean, the Australian Shepherds, the Austie, the Doberman is a Dobie, the Rot's a Rotty, you know. There's there's a lot of dogs that have it, and Lanky is what I can, you know, people consider the nickname for the Lancashire Healer. Well, Patricia, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Best of luck. Yeah, we thank y'all. We're, we're proud. We're happy and we're proud we've got where we've gotten. Patricia Blankenship breeds Lancashire healers. We reached her in Flora, Mississippi.
Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. It's a race against time for rescuers searching for survivors of Monday's earthquake in western Japan. On New Year's Day, a 7.6 magnitude earthquake hit the Noto Peninsula, leaving at least 77 people dead and hundreds injured. According to officials, dozens of people are still missing, and while the window is closing to rescue survivors, teams will continue that work today. Rika Yamamoto is director of overseas operation with Peace Winds Japan. We reached her in Suzu City, Japan. Rika, it's been more than three days now since this earthquake hit and the window for rescuing survivors is closing. How hopeful are you that your team can still make it to people in time? Well, that's a difficult question. Um, our team is still trying to find the people from the crashed houses. Our rescue team has already been to the field this morning to look for the survivors in the very remote area where the previously nobody has access. I hope we can rescue someone. Now, the first 72 hours are critical in these types of rescues. How do you maintain hope that you're going to find people alive still? Well, we, we know that there's the people who can survive um, from the past experience. We are still believing that there's still hope that the people can survive somehow and mm-hmm. waiting for us to find them. You've been spending the past few days doing this, helping in the rescue. What has that involved? So first, we will move together with the search and rescue dog and the medical team together with the firefighters or the self-defense force team. And first, when we arrive at the site, we will get the information from the local citizens where there's any possibility of the people. And then if there may be someone, um, we will release the rescue dog so that the rescue members together with the firefighters or the self-defense forces will look into the particular area more to look for the survivors. I imagine the dogs are important. They play a pretty central oh, role. Yes, definitely, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Their sense of smell is very important at this moment to find the survivors and increase the effectiveness of the rescue activities. Mm-hmm. Your teams were able to help rescue one woman from the second story of a house. What happened there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our rescue dog... Um, showed there's maybe some smells under. So our rescue team went into it and removed all the, the remaining of the houses and successfully found the lady. How was she? Well, yes, she's... she's I, I don't say she's okay. How should I say? Um, she rescued... And we put her into sort of, not the proper ambulance, but ambulance, mm-hmm. and took into the hospital. 
for proper check by the doctor. So I don't know after that. Um, but um, she was she was okay. She was able to get out alive. Yes, yes, yes. When you look around Suzu right now, are there houses that are still standing, or are most have most of them been knocked down? It, it, depending on the area, mm-hmm. um, some block the house remained. The other block, um, the house are all collapsed. Mm. The other block, houses are half collapsed and the, the half standing. And then there's very many aftershocks. So um, if the aftershocks are very strong, you know, these remaining houses or half collapsed houses may um, get further damaged. And the town was also hit by a tsunami shortly after the quake. What, what effect did that have yes. on the town? I didn't go to the edge of the town, but I understand in Suzu City, the tsunami was something like three meters. Um, so some of the, the houses nearby the seashores get damaged. And where are people staying, people who, who are left homeless after their houses were destroyed? Um, people are staying in evacuation centers, but the city was not prepared enough to receive this many citizens mm-hmm. and all rushed into the centers. So there is not enough blanket, not enough food. Um, the power is not coming back yet. So there is the problem of heating. So there's a lot of problem even if you survive and then arrived at the centers. Right. As days go by, efforts will sadly shift from rescues to recovery operation. But clearly, these communities require more support. What can you and others do for them in the days ahead? Yes, um, we are trying to increase our medical activities. And then we have been starting the relief items or any of the relief activities so that those who survived this earthquake and tsunami at least can get the minimum living um, basics. Um, They are gathered into the evacuation centers and they are too packed. Uh, So we wanted at least a little comfort because we are expecting they may have to stay there longer than they planned. What what can you tell them to help comfort them at this difficult time? Well, um, you know, um, whenever I speak to them, I try to tell them that the people will support you. Mm-hmm. The help is coming, although the road is still um, cut and the electricity is not back and uh, sometimes the water is not coming. But um, there are so many people who are trying to help them and provide any support which they can. So there will be the help coming. That's the message which I'm trying to tell them whenever I meet them. Well, thanks very much for speaking with us, Rika. We'll be following the story. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Rika Yamamoto is Director of Overseas Operation with Peace Winds Japan. We reached her in Suzu City, Japan. (laughs) ¶¶ 
It was a Christmas present that will be hard to forget. A gram of magic mushrooms and a coca leaf. Drug activist Dana Larson mailed those gifts to every MLA in BC. Both are illegal in the province. Dana Larson is the founder of the Coca Leaf Cafe and the Medicinal Mushroom Dispensary in Vancouver. Here he is talking about the drug presence on On the Coast in Vancouver. I wanted to show our elected officials、uh, what these things really are. There's nothing to be afraid of when it comes to a coca leaf or a mushroom, and in fact, both these substances have a lot of benefits and a lot of positive uses. And it's very strange that our lives would treat a coca leaf exactly the same as cocaine. And so, the part of this idea is to help educate these officials. I invited them all to come down to see our operation, the kind of people that we serve, and the kind of customers that we have, and maybe educate themselves and learn. Well, the reaction has been、uh, hysteria and panic, and opening the packages with rubber gloves on, and calling the police to dispose of a of a leaf. But you know, here's a, what a coca leaf looks like. It's nothing to be afraid of. You know, it's nothing to be concerned about. And it's actually got millennia of social, cultural, spiritual, and、uh, use around it, medicinal use around it. These things are highly relevant to millions of people around the world. So, yeah, I expected them to overreact and to call the police and to get all worked up about it. But that's kind of the point because you don't need to get worked up about these things. Mushrooms and coca leaves are harmless and, in fact, quite beneficial for most of the people that use them. And so, to me, this shows kind of the hysteria and ignorance at the root. Of the drug war, that getting a leaf in the mail causes a great amount of panic and, and concern. That was Dana Larson speaking with CBC's Gloria Makarenko. Eleanor Sturko is one of the 87 MLAs who received the mushrooms and coca leaf. Here she is speaking with On the Coast. Well, you know, I find it really inconsiderate to have someone mail drugs, illicit drugs that are at this time still unlawful, and traffic them to us and and put、uh, members of the legislative assembly in possession of a controlled substance. You know, it's it's very inconsiderate.、Um, you know, I've been very open about my recovery. I'm a person who lives in sobriety,、um, but maybe there's other members of the legislative assembly as well who are also,、um, you know, former substance users for whom. Receiving a package or so-called gift like this is actually quite an inconsiderate act. This is the thing: is that you know I've received a lot of、um, emails from people who are concerned that I don't understand that there could be medicinal purposes for、um, psilocybin mushrooms. I do know that, and so that's not what my outrage is about. The fact of the matter is, is that he's not licensed to distribute psilocybin. This is still a controlled substance, and there's rules and regulations. And so, you know, it frustrates me and angers me actually that then we have someone on the other hand, like Dana Larson, who does not、uh, have a license, who doesn't play by the rules, who isn't doing the required reporting, and potentially is putting the public at risk. And then he he considers himself a hero because he's now trafficked drugs to elected officials across the province. That was Eleanor Sturko speaking with CBC's Gloria Makarenko on On the Coast in Vancouver. Community in British Columbia is mourning the loss of a family matriarch, an orca named Wake.
Known more officially as T-46, Wake was a Biggs killer whale, and by all accounts, she was one of the most prolific female killer whales on record, meaning that she leaves behind at least eight children, 15 grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. Jarrett Towers is a whale scientist and the last person to photograph Wake last February. It was also the last known sighting of the killer whale. She is now presumed dead. We spoke with Mr. Towers in Albert Bay, B.C. Jared, what can you tell us about the moment you spotted T-46 for the last time? Well, it was uh, almost a year ago, not too far from where I am now in Alert Bay, and she was with uh, many of her kids, as well as some unrelated family of killer whales, the T-36s, and they were quite surface active. It was nice to see T-46 and, and all those other whales. I've been watching her most years for m- more than a, a couple decades now, mm. and uh, I didn't think it was the last time I was going to see her. And she was, what, swimming around with the pod? Or what, what were they doing? Well, a lot of the time when there's big killer whales here, they're either traveling or they're foraging. And and these whales were traveling west, um, quite surface active as they went, lots of breaches and tail flaps and pectoral fin flaps. Mm. Uh, T-46 herself was was traveling with T-36 uh, a lot of the time that I was with them on that day. T-36 is another post-reproductive female, a matriarch of her own family. And uh, it was nice to see them spending some time together. She's now presumed dead, um, but without seeing her carcass, what makes you so sure? Well, I use the word presume because that's really the best we can do. But it is uh, it is the way that we keep track of killer whales uh, off the west coast of Canada. And uh, it seems to be a, a method that works very well. If a particular individual hasn't been seen with its family and there's many encounters of that family over the course of about a year or so, we can be pretty sure that that whale is dead because killer whales are so cohesive with their offspring um, that uh, if any one of those offspring or the matriarch in this case dies, those whales would be seen without it. And, um, and over the course of five decades, we've uh, managed to keep track of killer whale population on death and, and birth. And this is the the method that we use to keep track of uh, their deaths. And so far, uh, we've had no resurrection. Do they show any signs of mourning? Yeah, there are some uh, observations uh, which in which killer whales, which have recently lost a mother, have behaved uh, in unusual ways. And it, it's hard to really put human emotions on these whales, but, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to... Um, ignore the possibility that, that those emotions do exist. And and um, mourning behavior has definitely been documented in killer whales over the years. And what does it look like? Well, in, in one case, um, two sons who lost their mother in the 1990s uh, swam around and around in uh, a big circle for a couple of days, mm. vocalizing loudly, almost like they were looking for her. And of course, she didn't respond. And and that was uh, right on the heels of her death. Um, sometimes when a, a mother killer whale loses her calf, um, she'll pack around the dead body for several days in what has been um, thought of as mourning behavior. So there's, there's different ways in which these animals might mourn, um, which are probably not unlike the ways that we do, but mm-hmm. it's very hard to get into the mind and the heart of a killer whale. Yeah, of course. 
What made T-46 such a famous whale? Well, T-46 is one of the most prolific female killer whales on record anywhere in the world. Uh, She was first documented in 1976 as a young adult female, um, which means that she would have been at least 10 years old at that time. Um, She went on to have at least eight kids, um, at least 15 grandchildren, and at least five great-grandchildren. We wouldn't know about any offspring that her sons have fired just because of the way the killer whale social structure is. So it's quite likely that that she's had um, more grandchildren and great-grandchildren than than we know about. Now, she had a nickname, which is Wake, but you call her by her her alphanumeric designation. Why the preference? Well, Wake is a nickname that was given to her just a few years ago. Um, There's a group of whale-watching naturalists who come up with different names for whales that they know, and they all vote on them, and then assign names to certain individuals. Um, the alphanumeric designation is, is a lot more descriptive in the sense that she was a 46 kilo whale identified in this population, and her offspring bear her name as well. Her mm-hmm. first offspring was T46A. Um, her grandchildren are named things like T46C1, T46C2. That's her third offspring, offspring, and so on and so forth. So it, it, there's a, really a story in, in mm-hmm. the alphanumeric designations. Now, back in 1976, T-46 was was actually captured by people who planned to send her to an aquarium. How did she manage Mm -hmm. to be set free? Well, she was captured with uh, a few other killer whales and held in a net pen for several days. And, yeah, eventually there was a lot of public outcry and media attention around that event during a time when killer whales had already been captured for the better part of a decade in Washington and British Columbia. And uh, and that outcry eventually led to those whales being set free hmm. and for live capture efforts to be um, made illegal in Washington State. So she had a pretty big impact. She did, not only on uh, legislation, but uh, also uh, for the health of the population. Now, you saw T-46 quite a few times throughout her life. Uh, you kept track of her. How do you feel now knowing that she's gone? Well, like I said, it, I didn't think it would be the last time I would see her. Mm-hmm. You know, big killer whales, uh, especially females, can live well into their 60s or 70s. Uh, she was quite likely in her late 50s or early 60s uh, when she disappeared last year. But it's nice knowing that she left such a great legacy behind. Jared, Thanks very much for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Jarrett Towers is a research technician with Fisheries and Oceans Canada and the executive director of Bay Cetology. We reached him in Albert Bay, B.C. There's no question recreational sports have been dealing with a growing problem, a rise in tension and aggression, both among players and spectators. And in the face of increased altercations on the ice, Hockey Newfoundland and Labrador is introducing one possible solution this year. It's doing away with the post-game handshake altogether and will instead move the show of sportsmanship to before the game. 
The association hopes the move will reduce incidents between players, but it's not sitting well with some players and fans. Gord Healy is among them. I'm not in agreement with it. I think it's sad, actually. The game has grown so much since I've been a young man. I'm 51 now. And it's all about inclusion now, including everybody, you know, the friendships, diversity, and, and uniting everyone together. And after the game, you know, like during the game, you play the battle, you leave it on the ice. Once the game is over, you shake hands. It's good sportsmanship. Something you're taught as kids from your parents, school, you know, no matter what, you know, it's, it's that common denominator, you know, you, you show good sportsmanship. So incidents are going to happen. It's a competitive game. But you don't punish the whole sport and the whole community of the sport and all of its players based on the actions of a few guys that get caught up in some emotions, which dies down in the dressing room. A lot of those guys you find after the game and they're in the dressing rooms, they're changed to shower, they're, they're great friends again. And you got a certain more respect for each other because they're respecting each other's competitive nature. Gord Healy is a recreational hockey player in St. John's. Not everyone agrees with Mr. Healy's take on the move. Andrew McKim runs hockey training programs in St. John's and is a former professional hockey player. You know, I'm looking at the handshake, and they did not ban the handshake. They just moved the time that they were doing it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of altercations after the, after the games, and, you know, referees were having a hard time, and people were uh, doing a lot of extra work when it was unnecessary work with suspension and suspending kids and suspending coaches. So it's just something that's really overblown. They're still shaking hands, just change time of the day. Tell me some of the things that you've heard about in the post-game handshake. What are some of the instances that can happen? Well, like I said, it's, it's now, it's, uh, you know, ever since COVID, a lot of kids aren't taking their gloves off and they're, they're punching. And instead of shaking hands, they're punching. It's just something where you've got a lot of young referees that are refereeing the games also. You know, you get teenagers and you get 40 people on the ice and trying to pick out the right person. And sometimes they pick out the wrong person who's getting suspended for, you know, something they didn't do. So it's, it's frustrating all, all ends. And to shake hands before the game, I think it's going to take out a lot of the controversy. It's going to actually help out the referees. I just think it's something the Hockey Newfoundland Labrador is address, addressing. And right now, to, to change it before the game might take away a lot of suspensions that obviously kids don't like, coaches don't like, and especially parents won't like. That was hockey player and trainer Andrew McKim. Before him, you heard player Gord Healy. Both were speaking with Terry Roberts of CBC Newfoundland and Labrador. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Thanks for listening. I'm Megan Williams. And I'm Samira Moyedin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.